Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. What does it mean to make our lives count? This is a topic we'll explore in today's message as we continue week two of our series, The Fellowship of the Gospel, with Dr. John Newfeld. Now let's turn in our text to Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. What is life all about? How do you know if you're successful? What should you desire more than anything? That is, what should you sacrifice and what must you never sacrifice? What ultimately matters? You know, all these questions are so crucial. And as you know, our society attempts to answer these questions. One answer goes like this. He who dies with the most toys wins. That, of course, means life is successful if you acquire more things than others. Harley-Davidson has the answer, live to ride and ride to live. That means real life is all about the freedom of riding a motorcycle. The Vancouver Canucks, where I live, had an answer a few years back. According to their slogan, this is what we live for. Hockey and cheering for the Vancouver Canucks, that's life. Now, if you're from Toronto or Buffalo or Winnipeg, you think that would be a wasted life. But there are other philosophies as well. Hedonism says that life is about satisfying yourself. And some say life is about family, and others say, well, life is about accomplishing something meaningful. Still others say life is service. The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Now, that's what real life is about, but but what does that actually mean? Today I'm going to describe exactly what Paul meant when he said that. And just to be clear, I'm going to try to put life's eternal purpose into one radio address, without sentimentality or vague jargon. I'm going to unpack life's meaning. Now, I'm reading from Philippians chapter 1, 18b to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, let's review what we've learned about this letter. We learned this letter was written by Paul while in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar's tribunal. At the end of his trial, he would be found not guilty and immediately be set free, or he would be found guilty and immediately beheaded. No long waits, just instant results. We also learned that the church in Philippi was in a fellowship with Paul, partnering together to see the gospel advance into the heart of the Roman Empire. Realizing Paul was in prison, they took an offering to take care of Paul's needs, and they sent a man from their church named Epaphrodites and sent him to Rome to take care of Paul. But through Epaphrodites, they wanted to know how Paul was doing, and Paul's response is amazing. I'm so filled with joy, I'm I'm dancing in my cell. I'm so glad I'm in prison. You see, I've been chained to a Roman guard, and now the entire Roman Imperial Guard, the most elite military unit in the country, charged with governing the Roman Empire, has now heard the gospel, and everyone is talking about Jesus. 
Furthermore, this has emboldened others to share the gospel. And Paul said in verse 18, in this I rejoice, I'm full of delight. And now he adds another phrase, I will rejoice. That is, I'm not done with my happiness. As I look to the future, I see a greater reason for joy that is just around the corner. I'm literally rubbing my hands with glee at what is about to happen. Well, what's about to happen? Well, according to verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, if you're not careful, you might say, huh, I know why he's so happy. The Philippian church is praying for him. And then along with that, the power of the Holy Spirit, well, this will result in Paul being freed from prison. He will be pronounced not guilty and be set free and then go on doing the thing that he loves the most, preaching the gospel. But that's precisely not what he's saying. Now, I have noticed that most of our praying today is about, yeah, deliverance. I'm sick. Pray for deliverance. I'm in a very tense situation in my marriage. Pray for deliverance. I've just lost a key friend. Pray for deliverance. I'm pregnant. Pray for deliverance. I'm going to fail my class. Pray for deliverance. I'm going to lose my job. Pray for deliverance. I mean, the economic downturn has deeply hurt my finances. Pray for deliverance. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, no, because the word translated in our Bible as deliverance is actually the Greek word salvation. In Paul, when he uses that word, it almost always means salvation from sin, from hell, from the wrath of God, from the appearing before God and being ashamed. Now, clearly, Paul's not worried that he's not saved, but it has occurred to him through revelation that some of the saints of God, when, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to be ashamed. Now, it's this last use of salvation, salvation from shame when he stands before God, is what Paul has in mind here. See, Paul is convinced that the events of his trial, which lie just before him, will leave him not only unashamed, but eternally vindicated, blameless before God. Now, to be clear, he doesn't think that he has the spiritual resources to pull this off by himself. He knows that the Philippians' prayers are ensuring this, and more so, he knows the Holy Spirit will be there. And by the way, the sentence should actually read, by God's supply of the Spirit of Jesus. In other words, when Paul would feel weak and afraid at his trial, God at the right moment will give him a resource, a supply. Paul expects that at just the right moment during his trial, the Holy Spirit will so fill him with power, he will be eternally vindicated before God. And in verse 20, Paul not only hopes he will not be ashamed, but that Christ will be honored in his body, either by life or by death. I mean, can you hear the anticipation there? Paul is saying, given that I will be declaring Christ at my trial, I can hardly wait for the beginning of my trial. This is going to be my joy. Now, you can almost imagine the scene. Paul was then at the heart of Rome, the most magnificent city in the world. The engineering that built that city still lasts until today. The forums, the Colosseum, the Circus Maximus, where chariot races happened in the full view of the balcony of the emperor's palace. Well, there was the Pantheon, the Baths, the great Aurelian Wall surrounding the city. Monumental architecture. The list goes on and on, all protected by the mightiest military the earth had ever known. You can imagine the chamber Paul would be brought into. Caesar's Tribunal, with all its wealth and grandeur and prestige and history, a room made for the solemn portrayal of Rome's justice, it would intimidate anyone. And here Paul uses the terms eager expectation, courage. I think the key of what he means here is found in the word eager expectation. 
You know, the only other time Paul uses that word is in Romans 8.19, where he speaks of the creation waiting with eager expectation the revealing of the sons of God. Now, apparently, Josephus, the Jewish historian, used this same word in describing the war of the Jews as they breathlessly awaited, same word he uses there, breathlessly awaited the hail of arrows from the Romans. In other words, the term means an intense expectation of something that is sure to happen. Because of the prayers of God's people and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, something is sure to happen. But what is it? Well, the answer is, when Paul appears before the tribunal, he will not be intimidated or ashamed, but instead, he will use the opportunity to boldly proclaim Christ without fear. And that is the deliverance. That is the salvation. It is the promise of Jesus that when we stand before human tribunals, remember Jesus spoke this way, that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. Paul is anticipating exactly that. See, the danger might have been that Paul would use the opportunity in that hall of justice to speak for his rights, or maybe he would even plead for a pardon, simply lose his courage, or that perhaps he would plead with God for leniency. But no, he awaits, just like a soldier on the battlefield, awaiting the arrows from the enemy, so Paul awaits the power of the Holy Spirit that will come upon him and give him courage to use that God-given opportunity to advance the gospel. He can hardly wait. And at this moment, his body, having been so often beaten, will show only honor to Jesus Christ. No body language of fear of death. He will exude the confidence that Christ and Christ alone rules over this ceremony. He is Christ's man, led by Christ into this place, and there Christ will be made much of. That's why he says, I will rejoice. And that's what real life looks like. And when we come back, we will consider the important sentence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's amazing to consider what Paul is saying to the believers in the midst of his dire situation in prison. How can someone be full of joy, eagerly anticipating his trial, talking about what real life looks like? Well, from today's message thus far, we're beginning to understand just how much Paul's life and his being was centered around Christ and the gospel. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will continue to unpack what this means for Paul and the application for our lives today. Laugh Again, an associated ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. In five minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened ears to hear the gospel and offered a message of hope in difficult times. Sarah wrote, I love Laugh Again. It's family humor. It talks about things that we can all relate to without tearing each other down. Well, only weeks ago, Laugh Again introduced its newest program, Laugh Again Take 5, a five-minute weekly video program that can be seen online at laughagain.ca or on the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel. If there was ever a time to be encouraged, check out Laugh Again Take 5 with Phil Calloway. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Thank you. 
Philippians 1 verse 21 contains one of the best known passages of the Bible, said by a man about to face a trial in which he would face either freedom or the immediate sentence of death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Please hear from a man who has figured life out. This is an attitude that Paul has already established years before this event. Listen to what he said in Acts 20. You know, in that passage, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. He's in a place called Miletus, in what we now call Turkey on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. From there, he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to come down and join him. And he tells them that things are going to go badly for him. And they're dismayed. Perhaps he shouldn't go back to Jerusalem. And then we come to Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now think about what he's just said. I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I mean, stop. Think about that. How many of us right now will put up our hands and say, yeah, me too. I too don't count my life as precious to myself. I want you to think about how countercultural that is. We live in a culture where now that we're talking about the meaning of life, Well, where many people think that the purpose of life is hanging on as long as they possibly can, delay death at whatever cost it takes. So in a society that fears death as the greatest evil, the Apostle Paul responds, to die is gain. Now, I've often been asked what happens to a believer at death, and my first response is to say, it's better by far. And by the way, that cancels out the false doctrine of soul sleep, unconscious until Christ returns. I mean, that doctrine doesn't square with to die is gain. We know that there is some sort of an intermediate state in which believers who now die are immediately brought into heaven and into the presence of God. See, some of us fear death. You know, if you were to receive a doctor's word that that you're going to die, I mean, how many of us would with our first word say, To die is gain. That is, things are looking up now. But that's what Paul says. He might go to trial and be executed shortly thereafter, and he says, wow, things are really looking up. I remember a number of years ago going to the bedside of an elderly woman who was dying. Indeed, she died several hours after I saw her. And when I came to her hospital room, her first words were, Pastor, I'm almost there. She said it with such fervency and conviction. I must say, I felt surprisingly a twinge of envy. I was going home to have coffee with my wife. She was going to see Christ. Now, let's consider the other side of the equation. To live is Christ. Now, if you're not careful here, you'll misunderstand this. I mean, some of us have taken this verse out of context so that it means for me to live and find meaning in life is to put Christ at the center of all that I do and then to die is gain. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that that's good, but it's in fact not what Paul is saying here because of the way that chapter one reads with the context of proclaiming Christ, what Paul is saying is if I am to live, that is, be found not guilty at my trial, then living means preaching the gospel of Christ, just like when I had a chance to share it with the elite Roman guard or at my trial. To live is Christ, and by that he means to live is to preach Christ. 
Now think about how radical that is. Let's stop and ask the obvious question. Are we all supposed to say that? I mean, does that mean I can't live for my spouse or my kids or my work or my hobbies? Does that mean I can't take a vacation, can't plan my career, can't fall in love and so forth? So let's examine that. First from this text. In verses 22 to 24, Paul presents us with his own dilemma. If the choice of living and dying were up to me, he says, then I would be in a dilemma. I am hard-pressed, he says, between two desires. He says, I am so desiring to be with Christ, so to remain alive would mean a significant sacrifice. The only reason I would desire living is because it would aid in the progress of the gospel for you. And that brings us back to the question, is that what we're all supposed to think? Is everything I am to do supposed to be subservient to a proclamation of the gospel, or is this just about Paul and his apostolic office? Ha, that's the question. So here's a principle. This text doesn't say you can't ride a motorcycle or go to hockey games or go out with friends and enjoy a movie or run a business and get an education, but there is a question that overrides all of them. If one of those things got in the way of the gospel— Would you gladly give them up? Would it seem like a small thing or a big thing? And when you answer that, you will know what your purpose is. And you will know why you're so full that you overflow or why it is that you're so intolerably empty. What is your purpose? Do you have a job to make a living? Is that your ultimate purpose? Then all you're doing is trying to survive. To live is having enough and to die is loss. But what if you have a job to support ministry and to share the gospel with others? William Letourneau ran a successful company and gave away 90% and lived on 10%. I mean, how about that? Others see their job as the best place that they can make Christ known. What if you plan a career because you're looking to advance the gospel? What if you commit yourself to get married only to that person who will be your partner in advancing the gospel? What if you move into retirement asking how that extra time can be used to advance the gospel? Then you can say, to live is Christ, but don't you dare say it if it's not true. It was Count Zinzendorf, the father of German Protestant missions, that said, I have but one enthusiasm. It is he, only he. And in the late 1880s, the Scottish missionary John G. Patton felt called to preach the gospel in the New Hebrides Islands, islands that at that time were known for cannibalism. An elderly Christian gentleman, a Mr. Dixon, was concerned for John Patton and tried to discourage him. He said, Mr. Patton, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And here's what Patton said in return. Mr. Dixon, You're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms, and I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. How about that? Do you agree with Patton? It makes no difference. Just let me be useful to Christ. To some of us, it does. And that's why you don't understand life's great purpose. You thought it was family and friends and possessions and accomplishments and books and jobs and travel and education. But what if everything comes down to this, to know Christ and to make him known? Are you ready for that great life's purpose? Now to verse 25. Convinced that God has called me to go on living, I will stay for your progress in the faith. Do you see the assumption here? Paul thinks that the outcome of his trial will not be decided by the emperor's tribunal, but by Christ. 
and he strongly suspects that Christ has more assignments for Paul. Yes, he will be called upon to go back to some of the churches. We know that later he was to send Timothy to Ephesus and clean up the false teachers there, an assignment that Timothy performed so well that in the book of Revelation, Jesus would say to a church that once tolerated false teachers, I know that you cannot bear those who do evil, and by that he meant the false teachers. I think Paul may have then fulfilled a plan to take the gospel to Spain, and according to Paul's own testimony here, he would have some work to do in Philippi. Apparently, there were some lessons in spiritual maturity that they had not yet mastered. And here's the point. What is your assignment from God, and are you doing it? Can you say, for me to live is Christ? Now, let's look at the last verse in that paragraph so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see what Paul wants? The Philippian church will get word of how Paul handled himself in prison, chained to a Roman guard, and then at his trial as he stood before the solemn judiciary in Rome and gave the confession of Christ, and in him they will glory in Christ. They will be overwhelmed, never having known how great Christ was until that moment. If you want to live for Christ's glory, then live for it. Live so that others are hearing of Christ and are progressing in the gospel. John, a great message. But what does it really mean for us? I mean, you've talked about it a little bit already, but when it comes to all the responsibilities we have for family, for work, for even church, what is Paul modeling for you and I to respond to? Look, family is important. I mean, I think if we neglect our own family, we neglect to share the gospel of Jesus with our family. I mean, when you think about some pastor's families in which the pastor has spent all that time in ministry and has not shared the gospel or modeled the gospel and shown the love of God to his own children, I mean, obviously things begin to fall apart. But I think that our interest in our family comes under our interest to the gospel so that it is in the gospel that I minister to my family, that I love my family. I think, I think that's what Paul has for us, that family doesn't exist on its own, but is always subservient to Christ. Do Paul's words, to live is Christ, to die is gain, ring true in your life? We've heard that line so often, but perhaps haven't gotten into its full message until today. It was Paul's ultimate passion to live so that Christ would be glorified. This for him and for us to constitute real life. I hope that this lesson has encouraged and perhaps challenged you to consider what your ultimate life purpose is. Let us continue to embrace God's calling in our lives to proclaim Christ in whatever opportunities we're given. I hope you can listen again tomorrow as we study the last few verses of chapter 1 from the book of Philippians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, it's with great sincerity that the entire Back to the Bible ministry team wants to express its deep appreciation for the gracious support of all of our donors. But for this moment, we'd like to express our gratitude to those of you who support this ministry as monthly partners. In normal times, we recognize and value the important role you play. But in unprecedented times as these, The essential nature of your commitment to continue to teach the Bible and share the gospel could not be more obvious. So thank you. Please be assured of our daily prayers for you and your families in challenging times. 
We extend our gratitude for your partnership in the gospel. And remember, all of our resources continue to be made available online at backtothebible.ca. Or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425.